Hello, and welcome to Notes on History, a podcast by a historian who has no clue how to make a podcast. I'm Paul Stetzel. Today marks the third entry on fields of study used by the historian, and today I'm going to turn our attention to the study of geography. If you'll pardon me for a moment, I'm going to explain why we're looking at this today by getting up on my soapbox and taking a moment or two to bemoan the modern state of affairs when it comes to this subject. Way back in 2006, I think it was, National Geographic and Roper Public Affairs released a study which made me wonder how it is that I'm not running the planet, given how uninformed so many people between the ages of 18 and 24 were in those days, and I don't think it's gotten any better. I'll point out that the study indicated that this is not, let me repeat, this is not just an American problem. Let's look at some of the more entertaining results from the study. According to the study, 63% of young people, who in 2006 by and large were opposed to the war in Iraq, didn't know enough about that war to be able to, define, uh, to find that country on a map. True, never support a war against a country you know nothing about. But if your country has been at war for three years by 2006, and you don't know the basic facts about it, shame on you. Speaking of which, 88% could not find Afghanistan on a map of Asia five years into American involvement in that country. Only 25% could find Israel on a map. Reasonable, since we never hear about Israel in the news, or Iran. On the bright side, more people were able to locate Iran. 26% of respondents knew where Iran is. 75% could not find Indonesia, and did not know that Indonesia is a predominantly Muslim country. Half of all respondents could not find where over a billion Indians live or where all their high-end Japanese electronics come from. Half of respondents could not find the state of New York on a map of the United States. This one actually didn't come as a surprise to me, as I've spent a good portion of my life in Rochester, New York, and constantly have to remind non-New Yorkers that New York is a lot more than just Lower Manhattan. A third of respondents, just months after Hurricane Katrina, could not find Louisiana on a map. Now, what does this really mean? Well, the examples given here are more indicative of what it was at the time, current events the dessert course in history. But could you imagine 20 or 30 years from now, someone recalling the history of Israel without knowing how truly tiny an area it is? Or that Israelis are within a stone's throw, sometimes literally, from hostile neighbors? Could you imagine a historian writing about American involvement in Asia and the Middle East 50 years from now without mentioning that for years, Iran sat between two hotspots of American military activity? Or Ukraine was, I don't know, Russia adjacent? These are the issues that historians will have to consider throughout this century. But because this is being published in 2023 and we don't know how all that will turn out, I'm going to talk about how historians use geography to understand the past that we are familiar with. The idea here is that I hope to express to you the importance of studying geography in order to understand the history that I talk about every week. Now, just fair warning, the nature of the topic means that I'm going to talk about a bunch of things that are going to seem really random and unrelated, but today's just the nature of the beast, so uh, pardon me in advance if I transition between these things awkwardly. There is a term that I want to talk about so that we can get it out of the way right up front. The term is environmental determinism. 
and I'll let you know up front that I am not really an environmental determinist, but I, I want to talk about it because in a podcast episode about geography, I ironically don't wish to overemphasize the importance of geography. The term itself is the belief that cultures and history are the direct result of their environment. In other words, in explaining major trends, the actions and decisions of individuals aren't as important as factors like climate, natural resources, etc. I don't subscribe to that theory because I believe in the importance of individuals in history. However, there are some aspects of the, of the theory that do hold water and we do need to account for. David Landis, in his uh, book Wealth and Poverty of Nations, argued, among other things, that the global dominance of Europe and European culture over the last half millennium is due to the advantages Europe was given long before there was ever such a thing as a European. And to some extent he has a point. A moderate climate makes certain types of work easier, and you don't have poisonous animals at every turn. You tend to not reproduce and make more humans when you've been stung to death by who knows what. However, to suggest that Europe was bound for hegemony over the rest of the world because of issues like climate and resources is preposterously simplistic. If that was all it took, why didn't the Iroquois do it? Or the Russians in the 16th century? Or the Chinese for that matter? My point in saying this up front is to caution you that geography is not an end-all, even though you will find people wishing to say that it is. So how can history and geography interact with a lighter touch? Well, let's look at some examples of how they interact, and we'll see where they interact is on a smaller scale than what Landis was suggesting. When you were in high school, you either took a course of study in global studies or, depending on your age, some equivalent course of uh, non-American history. And one of the things you learned was that civilization as we recognize it began in river valleys. The Nile, the Indus, the Yellow River, etc. Uh, this is World History 101, and the reason it is one of the first things you learn in such a course is that this concept of civilizations appearing first in river valleys, there's the geography we're talking about, is crucially under, important to understanding the advent of civilization. Uh, more specifically, let's start by looking at Egypt for just a moment. To some extent, the whole idea of the, quote, cradle of civilization is based on conjecture. We can only guess as to what really caused people to sit down and start relying on agriculture for a living. It's something like trying to figure out who was the first person to say, hey, let's cut open this pig, empty out this tube of poop, fill it with raccoon meat, and call it sausage. Similar situation. We don't know how it happened, and quite frankly, the actual process is probably better left a mystery. Ultimately, who came up with the idea of settling down and why isn't really as important as the aftershock, the finished product, the sausage. People settled down along, among others, the Nile River and began farming. When there was a surplus of food that you could store, you didn't need as many people to work the farms, so they could perform other jobs. They made farm equipment, they raised farm animals, they became artists, they watched the stars, they became priests, and they created their own political class. But what does geography have to do with that? Well, the answer is why I want to focus on Egypt for just a moment. Why is it that Egypt in particular was so successful as far as civilizations go? Mystique? Legend? Scantily clad babes in every temple? Certainly, the unrecorded decisions made by individuals had a lot to do with it, but the backdrop for this is the map of the Eastern Mediterranean world. Look at Egypt on a map, if you happen to have one nearby. 
That river upon which the Egyptians built their civilizations is the centerpiece of Egyptian culture. Always has been, always will be. The Nile floods regularly, and then it recedes. It's like the river itself, over long periods of time, breathes in and then out, and then in and then out, and then in, then out. And the Egyptian people began to rely on this steady, even pattern. Furthermore, Egypt is safe and reasonably secure. Hostile armies couldn't approach it from the west. The desert was too vast, and besides, there wouldn't be anyone to the west of Egypt with the power to be a threat for many hundreds and hundreds of years after the rise of Egypt. You could approach Egypt from the south, but only along a narrow path on either side of the Nile, and again, not too many political powers to the south were often capable of attacking Egypt. You could approach from the east, but only across a narrow and inhospitable Sinai. To the north was the Mediterranean Sea, where Egypt would be threatened with extreme danger, but not often enough in the grand scheme of things. Bear in mind, of course, that I'm talking about enemies armed with spears and chariots, not F-14s. Time makes fools of us all. Egypt was safe enough from threats during their critically important period of growth, while at the same time they enjoyed avenues of contact with others that would facilitate that growth. Denial isn't just a river in Egypt. The Nile acted like a highway. It is easily navigable for much of its length in Egypt, cataracts notwithstanding, and you could easily transport goods and people up and down with very little effort. In the Middle East, you also had the great civilization of Mesopotamia, far enough away to keep them from threatening Egypt with military might before the age of reasonable military logistics, but close enough to develop the routes of trade along which would travel both goods and ideas. It's a lot easier to move a trade caravan than it is an army, after all. Between Egypt and Mesopotamia, right smack dab in the middle of the route between the two, was the land we now call Israel. How's that for fate? Could you imagine the Old Testament without the Israelites in Egypt or the Babylonian captivity? Where would Charlton Heston's career have gone then? Because in the end, isn't that what really matters? Now, between Egypt and Mesopotamia, right smack dab in the middle of the route between the two, was the land we now call Israel. How's that for fate? Could you imagine the Old Testament without the Israelites in Egypt or the Babylonian captivity? Where would Charlton Heston's career have gone then? Because in the end, isn't that what really matters? Now, let's try something else on precise. Here's another hastily made and awkward transition. I mentioned that the Egyptians were able to use the Nile like a highway. The Chinese did the same with both the Yangtze and Yellow Rivers, and we Americans have certainly done the same with the Mississippi, or more recently, the St. Lawrence River. But sometimes, rivers can be used as natural boundaries. I wouldn't be me if I didn't use the Romans as an example whenever I can, and here's how I'm going to do it. Look at a map of Europe today. There is a clear dividing line between what we can call Mediterranean culture on the one side and Germanic and Slavic cultures on the other. In the west, this line coincides with the Rhine River, which divides France and Germany, whenever the Germans aren't busy invading, that is. Why should this be? The Franks, who became French over time, were originally Germanic, something both the French and Germans try very hard to forget, especially when the Germans aren't busy invading, that is. The difference between the Germanic peoples who remained to the east of the Rhine and those who migrated to the west of the Rhine was that those on the west became Romanized. The distinction even existed when the Franks straddled both sides of that river. The Romans 
use the Rhine as the limit of their empire. Now, they used the Rhine as a highway as well, that much is clear, and there were plenty of Romans on the far side of the river. But the river served as a defensible line that they could use as a defined border in a time when the borders over large areas were often very difficult to define. Why would they do this? The reasons why the Romans chose to pick a line and stop expanding there, well, that, that's actually quite controversial in historical circles. But the point is that they wanted to create a defined border. This border had to defend not against an enemy army, but against large masses of migratory tribes, the whole tribes. Men, women, and children, and everything that comes along with large groups of migrants. A wide river with few crossing points made a great choice. There was a point when Augustus attempted to push east and turn the Oder River into the line, but when that failed, the Rhine made an excellent choice. The decisions humans make with reference to geography are not always grandiose, strategic moves with repercussions for centuries to come. Sometimes it can be something as simple as where we live our daily lives. Look into your own local history sometime and see why your hometown is where it is. The answer is often fascinating. For example, I mentioned earlier that I grew up in Rochester, New York. If you're ever in Rochester, go downtown sometime and walk along the Genesee River, and you'll find Rochester is located right in a series of waterfalls. Perfect place to set up mills if you're looking to take advantage of all that open farmland in western New York in the early 19th century. Specifically, I lived in a suburb of Rochester called Pittsford. There's a town that is not actually located where it should be. If you ever find yourself in Pittsford, drive about a mile south on Main Street from the center of town, and you'll come to a crooked intersection with a cemetery off on one side. That's where the town originally was. When the Erie Canal was built, the town literally picked up and moved a mile up the road in order to be a port on one of the greatest public works of the pre-railroad era. Furthermore, these days I live outside of Columbia, South Carolina. This city was built as a planned city. In the late 18th century, the government of South Carolina decided it wanted to build a new capital more geographically centered in the state. But we're not in the geographic center, we're actually a few miles off that center. Why? Well, Columbia is located on what's called the fall line. It's the farthest point upstream where you can still navigate a boat, meaning that the new capital was located far inland to please the people who were far inland, but it was not so far that people couldn't communicate easily with the population centers along the coast. Look into your own local history and you may find similar bits of trivia. Heck, I've just rattled off geographical tidbits uh, about just three of the places I've lived, and I'm not exactly a world traveler. Thanks to the joys of technology, I know I have listeners all over North America and in Europe. I'd be willing to bet that someone listening to this has been affected by geography in some way. One of the problems with presenting a short podcast is just that. It's too short. I could spend the rest of my life analyzing how geography affects the ins and outs of history, and indeed, there are some academics who do just that. Suffice to say, as we discuss any historical topic, there is a good chance that we can start the discussion by talking about the lay of the land, both literally and figuratively. The phrase lay of the land is important. Remember it when you tune in next week when I'm going to tell you two stories where very, very local geography made an impact in the course of history. That's all for today. Once again, if you have any questions or comments, you can use that newfangled electronic mail to reach me at paul at notesonhistory.org. I'm Paul Stetzel. Thanks for listening.